So many of us um, have an addiction, not the type of addiction that requires a recovery center, a 12-step program, or, or some process of detoxification, but it's every much as real as um, a clinical addiction. So many of us are in bondage to what other people think of us. So many of us live with an addiction that's been properly named, popularly titled, an approval addiction. If we find ourselves being easily hurt by what someone said about us, if we find ourselves getting competitive in otherwise ordinary situations, if we find ourselves uh, comparing ourselves with other people, if we, if we find ourselves seeking approval from important people in our lives, if we find ourselves having a, a sense, a vague sense of are we valuable and important and are we special, if those things are happening within us, we probably have an approval addiction. Someone put it this way. They said that our lives, sometimes we get uh, so easily swayed by criticism. We go high uh, with success and we go low with criticism. We become easily depressed when someone says something less than glowing about us. Or when we have uh, something good happen, we get puffed up with pride to, uh, to a big too big of an extent. They likened it to being a, a boat on a mighty ocean just driven by the winds. We're so easily swayed. The Apostle Paul said in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 10, he said, Do I now seek the approval of God or the approval of men? Another uh, punch to the stomach comes from John chapter 12 when describing religious people of the day. It says that they... They live for the glory of men over the glory of God. A question for us this morning I would love for you to ask, to whom do you belong? Do you belong to the world or do you belong to God? To whom do you belong? It's easy in this world to become enslaved to what other people think of us. Some of us have a greater propensity than others. But I think all of us, in some respects, are like that tiny boat on the ocean, just so easily swayed by things. Now, for some balance and perspective, let's think about it. Uh, affirmation and appreciation are good, aren't they? Uh, we received a thank you note recently, my wife and I, and it was really for her, but I took some credit. As someone said, Thank you, Susan, I kind of slid in there and received some of the thanks myself. But we love to give and receive thank you notes. That's appreciation. I've talked to you about this before. But a deeper level is affirmation. That's when you appreciate somebody for who they are. And appreciation or affirmation are a very important part of life. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, it's, you know, for a, a child that receives a pat on the back for a good performance, uh, a woman whose beauty is praised by her lover, uh, a soul saved by Christ who will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. How sad. How tragic it would be if we lived in a world where accomplishments weren't applauded, where touchdowns weren't celebrated, where we just, you know, where kids didn't have parents and grandparents in the stands uh, taking a delight, expressing joy over their accomplishments. If mates didn't praise each other and brag on each other, if pastors didn't receive encouraging notes, hint, hint. It's good, isn't it, to have appreciation or validation, but to whom do you belong? Are you living for the praise of man or the praise of God? Whose approval are you after today? Uh, years ago, when our 12-year-old daughter 
was probably about six, six years old. We were vacationing, as we often do, in Susan's hometown in the South Bay of, of Los Angeles on the Palos Verdes Peninsula. Susan, my wife, has a younger sister herself who works at a five-star resort. It's called the Terranea. It'd be fun to Google sometimes. It's a great resort. And at this place, because it's South LA and so nice, a lot of celebrities come in there. And many years ago, there was a huge celebrity that my daughter thought was so cool that my wife's sister saw, talked to, and got her autograph. Uh, you want to know who it was? Hannah Montana, Miley Cyrus. Now, bear in mind, this, this was pre-twerk era, okay? But we were just thrilled by it all, right? Hannah Montana. So Laura, our, my, her aunt, she, get, she gets the signature, and, and Haley's just so thrilled by it all. And she brings it back to school for, you ready for this? For show and tell, right? Y'all do show and tell? And in show and tell, great. I mean, doesn't that just bring out the little narcissist in every child, right? I mean, let me show them and let me tell them and let me exaggerate, right? The fish gets bigger in those stories. I'm sure none of y'all did that, right? But it, it's show and tell time. And for Haley, it was so great to show up and show and tell. But what is it about us? Because you know what I know, if you think about it. The, our celebrity fixation, which is at an all-time high, can't be helped. What is it about us that we want to feel so important? We want, to, we want to know somebody important, or we want to meet someone important. We want to know someone who knows somebody important. We want to know somebody who met somebody who got an autograph so we can show other people that we know somebody who met that person and got an autograph, and we can show and tell. What is it about us? It's not just my daughter's problem years ago. It's something about us. We want to feel important. We want to, we want to be valued, and we really care. We really care about the approval from other, other people. Against this backdrop, we're going to finish this series, the Sermon on the Mount, with these final words from Jesus uh, in this section of Scripture. This hails from Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. These are the last uh, few verses. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If we have this approval addiction, if we're living for the glory, for the praise of man, if we're trying to attach our lives to make them significant because of what other people think, then we're in trouble, and we're really in trouble today when Jesus talks about how we really, really need to live for, the, for an audience of one. What relationship ought the Christ follower to have with the world? In John 16, 33, Tim Tebow had it under his eyes when it, back when he played, and it was legal. But Jesus says, the first part of the verse says that in this world you will have trouble. Now, it goes on to talk about his peace and how we are overcomers in Christ. But in this world, you will have trouble. Prior to that, in John 15 and verse 18 and following, Jesus says to his closest followers, he says that if they hated me, they're going to hate you. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. What kind of relationship do we have with the world? James, the half-brother of Christ, said that friendship with the world is enmity with God. 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17. Don't love the world. Don't, don't love the world or the things that are in the world. For all that's in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, it's, it's passing away. 
the beloved disciple John says. It seems later that the disciples got the message of Jesus, didn't they? And they, they were passing it on. Don't, don't love the world, but do you love the world? Did anybody love the world this weekend? Did anybody get worldly this weekend? Don't answer in church now, but did you? But here's what I think the psalmist in Psalm 24 and verse 1 said, The earth is the Lord's, Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything in the world is His. That to me seems like an invitation to, to love the world, right? To, to love what God has made. I do, do you? I mean, I, I, I glory in the creation of God. This week I posted on Twitter uh, a video. It's a four-minute four video of a golden retriever uh, uh, water skiing. I don't know if any of you saw that, but it'll bring joy. I mean, I love boats and water, and I love the outdoors. And y'all know I love golden retrievers. And then you throw in a golden retriever that can that can ski. I mean, oh my goodness. And we found ourselves at our house just watching that over and over. What a delight. And to hear this family, they thought the, go, the dog was just going to you know ski for a little bit and drop drop and crash in the water, whatever. It just it went around for minutes around the lake. What a, what a beautiful, thank God for making golden retrievers. Thank God for making people who made boats, right, and things that pull. I mean, the, the ingenuity and creativity of man. Thank God for Krispy Kreme donuts. God didn't make them, but he made a man who made them in North Carolina. That thought the idea, right? God, God created a great world. And you and I, church, you need to hear this. We are to get joy. We're to extract joy from the beauty of creation and, and find things that God has made, things that are good and rejoice in them. But you and I, Jesus wants to show us, we really have an odd relationship. It doesn't have to be terribly complicated, but there's this, this relationship with us. While we enjoy what He's made and while we live in this world, while He tells us to love it, He tells us not to love it. And He tells us the things as I mentioned earlier from 1 John, about the lust of the eyes and being drawn away. They're just things, the boastful pride of man. They're just things that are going to turn us away and we're going to become lovers of ourselves and lovers of money and lovers of things. But Jesus is saying as we follow Him, as we begin to live the blessed life, as we learn about being poor in spirit, and pure in heart, as we learn to be meek, as we learn to be merciful, as we learn to mourn, as we learn to hunger and thirst for righteousness and be peacemakers in this world, as we learn the blessing of God, we will be weird. And we will be ostracized and criticized. Persecution, to some extent, will it'll come our way. Now, on one hand, I've thought this this week as I've studied the passage. I've thought persecution for us... I mean, really? I love the story. I know a lot of you have heard it uh, about the, the chicken and the pig. And they had a conversation one day. The chicken invited the pig to breakfast. Let's, let's go get a bite. And the pig, pig said, what do you think? And chicken said, bacon and eggs. And the pig said, uh-uh. Bacon and eggs? No. I'll go out for breakfast, but not bacon and eggs. Because when it's bacon and eggs, you make a contribution. But I'm, I, for me, it's total commitment. Right? You get that? And I think that is similar to what we're talking about today. What level of persecution comes our way? I met with a friend of mine this week. He was filling out a, an application for a son to go to a special school. and He wanted his pastor to be there to do a reference. It, it, it helps him to get into the school, his son to get into school, if he's a, a church member. I walked out of Broad Street recently and saw the Metro Christian Living magazine and saw, what, 30 or 40 high school 
kids on the front cover being praised as top Christian leaders in Jackson. Can we be persecuted in this society? I dare any of you to run for office in Jackson today without being a member of some sort of faith-based place, right? I don't think you could do it. I think you need to point back and say, this is the church. This is where I'm involved. I mean, in this society where we can be praised as a pastor, I get a lot of, I have a lot of perks and privileges. A lot of doors are open for me just being a minister. I get discounts. I don't ask for them, but they just come my way. Can I be persecuted? Some of you feel called to ministry today, right? Do I, can we be persecuted? To what extent can we be persecuted? Let's look at a couple of passages. The first comes from Peter, one of Jesus' closest. He says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. He sounds like Jesus here, doesn't he? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. You see, Peter got what Jesus said. If you read the last beatitude like we did a moment ago, remember Jesus talked about uh, suffering falsely and suffering for righteousness. And what a teaching if you think about it. Jesus said earlier, blessed, happy are those who hunger and thirst for what? For righteousness. And now he's saying the very thing that you hunger and thirst for, the thing that's supposed to bring you happiness, brings you persecution. And Peter, following in the steps of the master, says, man, don't be surprised. It's it's a test. It's a fiery trial. But it's shared suffering. In other words, you will suffer, but someone will suffer with you. Someone has and will share in that suffering. Thessalonians, Paul said this, We ought also to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing. This is the opening of his letter in 2 Thessalonians. It's, your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you is increasing for one another. Paul's like me and you. When you write a letter, you start off with good things, right? Therefore, we ourselves boast about you. We're so proud of you, he's saying. We boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith and all your what? Your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Now, I do want to back up because I want to tell you as a pastor, I'm a learner. If you know me well, you know that uh, I'm imperfect and I fail in my leadership a lot of times. My vision isn't all that it needs to be. And there are things that I just, I'm not doing fully as God has called me to. But I want to, I want to learn. And as, as I talk the next few minutes, if God is doing something in your life in this area, I would love to hear your input about this. But I want to put a number up. I want to put a number up. I want to ask you, what is that number? What does that represent? I don't expect anybody to know, but I want to tell you. This is the number of Christians uh, who are murdered every year for the cause of Christ around the globe. Now that's Vault Hemingway, Davis Wade, and Mississippi Memorial Coliseum. Full. All three stadiums. Picture those. One's greater than the other two. But picture those stadiums full. And that's the number of believers around the world. The experts say that the top ten nations 
currently, no surprise, and some of these I'll name them, Burma, China, Sudan, uh, Vietnamese uh, nation, uh, India, Iran, North Korea, Egypt, Saudi Arabia. Those are the most dangerous places in the world to be a Christian today. And if you go and you read later about persecution of believers, it'll rock your world about things that we just we don't think about. We, we take them for granted. We're just not sure of. Our government, I've learned recently, has been involved. Fierce lobbying has led American legislators to enact punishment in certain areas to protect Americans who, for the most part, are Christians in these areas. Everything from diplomatic sanctions... Uh, to economic uh, punishment and all has, has, has and is taking place to protect uh, our own around the globe. In churches, this has been particularly meaningful to me as I've studied it recently, but churches around the globe, God is raising up a group of people to share His love and compassion. And they are uh, they're in proximity to those who are most persecuted, to those who literally, whose lives are on the line for the gospel, and they are raising awareness. They've got initiatives, they've got petitions and prayers, and they are awakening the giant of the American church, the church that we, to some extent, are involved in. And one of the new things now in the church, I don't know how new it is, but it's, it's become new to me and my awareness of it all, but it's, it's called symbolic suffering. Just as some of you fast to, to be reminded of your hunger for God and your denial of self, there's a, a movement of symbolic suffering going on now in churches, even in pockets of American churches, where it's ra- raising awareness, where concerned Christians, uh, concerned about persecution and what's happening around the world in specific places, are themselves taking on some form of suffering in a symbolic way to say we remember those who right now are in the throes of danger in the name of Christ. And so church, what do we do today when we hear this message about persecution? We, we know the scriptures about it. In fact, Hebrews 11 gives us the, the heroes of faith that many of us know about or study. We've been inspired by their stories, their failure and success and their faithfulness, the, as, as we just read, their steadfastness of faith. But many of them were jeered and flogged and in chains and in prison. We know that from the Scripture. And then we know about the, probably the worst era ever for Christian persecution were the Christians in Rome. But there's been other eras that have been amazing. Uh, at times, 200, 300,000 believers who have suffered uh, by sword or some sort of horrible death, even in what we would consider the more modern era. And it... It brings a question, it brings a thought to me um, about God and who He is and where He is and what His, what his intentions are with this. C.S. Lewis, one of, um, one of the studs, wrote a great book called The Problem of Pain and specifically he talks about suffering and affliction and persecution and this idea that have... It's plagued people of faith and philosophers for so long. The, the idea, the question of good things happening. I'm sorry, bad things happening to, to good people. C.S. Lewis, maybe too much existentialism for today, says, Not many years ago when I was an atheist, if anyone had asked me, Why do you not believe in God? My reply would have run like this. Look at the universe in which we live. By far the greatest part of it is empty space, cold and dark. On earth, life is so arranged that all forms of it can, only, can live only by preying on one another. In higher forms of life, there appears a quality called consciousness, which enables creatures to suffer pain. 
The creatures cause pain by being born, live by inflicting pain, and in pain they mostly die. Human beings also have reason, which enables them to foresee their pain, causing immense mental suffering. Reason also enables humans to inflict immensely more pain on each other and on the irrational creatures. This power they have exploited to the full. Their history is largely a record of crime, war, disease, and terror. Furthermore, the universe will one day cease to be. Every race that comes into being in any part of the universe is doomed. All stories will come to nothing. All life will turn out in the end to have been a transitory and senseless contortion upon the idiotic face of infinite matter. If you ask me to believe that this is the work of a benevolent and omnipotent spirit, I reply that all evidence points in the opposite direction. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Oh, happy day. But here's what, I'll, here's what I'm trying to do. Maybe I'm alone in this. But I read this risking a little bit. But I'm trying, to, I'm trying to tell you that if we really think about what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, that it's kind of huge. And it gets back to, to the very core of what we believe, what we have capacity to believe. As rational beings. And to who God is and to the character of God. Now I've opened up a can, as they say. But I would encourage you, if you have questions, don't email your pastor this week. Just read the problem of pain. And then email your pastor. But this this was C.S. Lewis's heart, this great mind. Who spent the bulk of his life as an atheist or agnostic and then later as a thoughtful, intelligence, credible witness for Christ. And C.S. Lewis talks about his journey and the problem of pain and where, how he got from there to postulating Lord, liar, or lunatic. Jesus made the claim, and he's either, he's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. And C.S. Lewis talks about that very idea and how we can have pain and why pain would even matter to us. And the outrage that we see when people do suffer and we do see afflictions and we see the reality of persecution or experience it ourselves. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.8, he said that um, I'm afflicted, but it, this isn't out of control. He says that, that I'm perplexed, but I'm not, I'm not to the point of despair. I'm persecuted, but I, I'm not forsaken. I've been struck down, but I haven't been destroyed. And this morning, if life is hard, if insults have been hurled your way, if you're at a really low point, even if you want to get philosophical, what I'm saying to you is there is a place. It's shy of despair where if we think about it, it can be hard, but it doesn't have to be the end for us. Now, honestly, I got a suicide call this week. And things can be really, really hard. And we could be what seems like on the brink of it all with the afflictions and the suffering that we have to endure. But Paul says, let me tell you. Let me tell you what Christ can do. Let me tell you the hope that he can offer. couple things I want to share just to give perspective on persecution. And I would say backing up, there's a pretty good chance that nobody in this room will ever be among the 163,000 
right? Pretty, pretty safe bet. And what do you do with that? You know what I do with that? I thank God. I thank God for our land. I thank God for this nation. I thank God for our forefathers and foremothers and the people that came before us. I thank God for my parents like Paul, you know, Lois and Eunice. I'm thanking God for my parents and grandparents and people. I'm grateful, aren't you? But yet, let's ask ourselves today, what type of persecution is possible for us? Now, Drew, I'm going to go to Cambodia with Drew this summer. Now, we're not going to be in harm's way, are we? Not Okay. Uh, but if we're in America today, what form of persecution might we endure? I, I look back on my life as I was thinking and praying and preparing this, and I thought, when have I been really ever persecuted uh, for my faith? And I, I thought of the first time that I, I, I guess to some extent I was persecuted. Now, this is like the chicken and the egg, right? It's not the pig and the bacon. But this is the, the chicken and the egg, but it was real persecution for me. But I remember uh, being a young man and hopping in the car with one of my best friends. And we jumped in the car with some older guys who were already in high school, and one of them had his driver's license, and we were driving this way, and all of a sudden we turned this way. And we, were, we ended up in a parking lot somewhere. And my friend said, what's up? And I said, what's up? And about that time, the guy driving lit up and started passing around one of these. It's now legal in Washington and Colorado. And they, they started toking. And I, I got out of the car. I opened the door said, this isn't for me. And my friend stayed. He said, this is for me. And they followed me. The car followed me. They were trying to lure me back in and tell me to be cool. That this is what cool people do. And I said, man, I'm, I'm cool, but I don't do that. And I just kept walking. It was a long walk. But they, they ridiculed me a bit. They really did. I'm not asking for your sympathy, but they ridiculed me. And what happened is my buddy, he, he, he smoked that day, and that's the path he took. And it, it, it came in between us. He, he, he thought he was cool and didn't think I was cool. I remember in college going to spring break. We were at Mississippi State planning a spring break trip, and I remember some of my best friends were going to the same place, but I was going with Campus Crusade for Christ. And they were going to Club La Vila, not for Christ, I guess. <laughs> and we just had a very interesting conversation. There were several of us in the room, and these guys were talking about their plans for alcohol and sexual conquest and the like. And nobody in that room said, Robert, I respect you. I admire you. I think you're living life the right way. They, they said the opposite. They, I felt in that moment persecuted. When I lived in Coral Gables and would work with the football team down there on the university campus, there's a guy who's now uh, in the NFL. He's very famous. And when we would walk in the locker room, he would look at me and say, What's up, Rev? And it was not a compliment. It was ridicule. It was mockery. He would put us down constantly when we would do chapel and talk to the guys. When have, when have you ever been persecuted? You see, I'm sure, almost sure, that none of us will be among that tribe. But you and I do. We do get alienated. We do get ostracized and criticized. We get persecuted to some, to some extent. And Jesus is saying, to whom do you belong? Do you belong to the world? Or do you belong to God? If you are one who is an approval addict, I know because I'm in recovery. I am learning as a pastor 
that I have to make decisions that not everybody's going to like. And I've got to make some tough calls. And not everything is a consensus. And I've got to be out in front and I've got to be ready for some stuff. But as a recovering, approval addict, people-pleasing person, it's a really important question. Are we living for God's approval or for man's? And Jesus has given us this promise that if we're living for God's, it's a blessed life. And we're not going to be so easily swayed. We're not going to be knocked down. We're not going to be distraught by what other people might say. Jesus goes on to say that if you're living life the right way, you will be persecuted. When Susan and I were dating all those years ago, we were in Atlanta this particular summer, and it was just weeks away from our engagement. She didn't know that, but I did. I had a, a ring in my pocket just burning a hole. And I would take her these weeks, I would take her to this amusement park with some of our friends. And in particular, we'd get on this one ride. It was always my idea. And you know why I wanted to get on this ride? It was dangerous. And there was this one hairpinning turn. It was just really dangerous. And every time we'd get on it, she would shriek in fear. And she would slide closer to me. Right? <laughs> And you see where she is today, okay? Down the hall, taking care of babies. But she's, she slid on over to daddy, didn't she? I mean, we made this thing. It's a, I think it's a lifetime commitment, she and I. But man, I, I would bring fear into her life because I wanted her to move. I wanted her to be closer to me. And God is going to do that to us. And like it or leave it, God has done that throughout the history of his movement. And the great thing about God is His credibility is always on the line. But God is solid. God is faithful. His Word is true. The glass withers, the flower fades. But the Word of our God is true. What Jesus said so long ago, we've seen it borne out. We see it borne out today. But He takes care of His own. And when persecution and affliction come our way, as God chooses to sustain us and keep us, His desire is to bring us closer to Himself. When I was in grade school, I was sort of a class clown, smart aleck teacher's pet. And in one particular year, I had this one teacher who just thought the world of me. Not hard to believe, is it? And I just, man, she just thought I was, she knew my mom and that had a lot to do with it. But I just, I was always on good behavior around her. And I was kind of like the, the leader of the class this particular year. And that meant that when we showed a film strip, I got to turn out the light. Uh, sometimes I actually got to turn on the projector. And at times, this is one of my favorites, I got to take names when she left the room. That was me. Any of y'all ever take names? I was the guy taking names. She would, the teacher would leave the room, and I'd be like, all right, Richard Daniel threw a spitball. Michelle Greer, Carla Harris are fighting. I would like, you want me to put, I'm going to take your name. I'm going to put your name down. You better behave. I'm going to write your name down. Don't make me, because the teacher would come back. Who's she going to believe, you or me? She's going to believe me. I love the privileges I got this particular year. I was the man, and the highest honor was a hall pass. She would send me out for an errand, and I would get a pass, and I'd be able to walk out the hall, and I could go anywhere I wanted. I didn't even have to be in class for much. I could just walk around, do her bidding, run some errands. If a teacher or authority figure said, hey, Robert Green, what are you doing? I could just say, got the pass. It's my hall pass. And that hall pass, what to do? It made this little kid feel even more special. It made me, it gave me a freedom. It allowed me to do some things. And God in His Word has written down for you and He has stamped your life 
He has said to you, you have a freedom. You have forgiveness. You have room. You are liberated. You are special. And with that, there are privileges that come. There is leadership and responsibility. But I've called you out and you've got this. You have a hall pass. You and I as Christ followers. And when we are tempted to say, my worth depends on what this person says about me. We've got to be called back to God who says, here's your pass. You're special. You're loved. It's signed. It's signed by me. You are highly, highly favored. I want to close with this. Max Lucado wrote a book uh, about the Beatitudes. And I've tried all this series not to plagiarize from him. Uh, a lot of preachers would, but I'm legit. Um, I haven't plagiarized from him, but I've got to read this in closing. This is what makes the promise at the end of the Beatitudes, uh, he says, so compelling. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. What is our reward? He says it's home. He cites Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice saying from the throne, Now the dwelling of God, now the dwelling of God is with men. And He will live with them. They will be His people and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. John is old when he writes these words. His body is weary. The journey has taken its toll. His friends are gone. Peter is dead. Paul has been martyred. Andrew, James, Nathaniel, they are fuzzy figures from an early era. As he hears the voice from the throne, I wonder, does he remember the day he heard it on the mountain? For it is the same John and the same Jesus, the same feet that followed Jesus up the mountain so long ago, now stand to follow him again. The same eyes that watched the Nazarene teach on the summit watch for him again. The same ears that heard Jesus first describe sacred delight, listen to it, revealed again. He goes on to talk about the beauty of the bride at a wedding. We, we did a wedding last night just down the street. And Jeff and Ashley can tell you it's a couple. They're friends of ours. Some of you know them. And they, they met at Fondren Church uh, two years ago. And they married. We married them last night. How cool is that? Y'all come on back to church, folks, single people. <laughs> but this, uh, this beautiful Molly... It was good golly as Molly came down the, the aisle for sure. Beautiful, beautiful bride. The most hopeful words, Lucado says, as I finish, the most hopeful words of the passage from Revelation are those of God's resolve. I am making everything new. It's hard to see things grow old. The town in which I grew up in is growing old. I was there recently. Some of the buildings are boarded up. Some of the houses are torn down. Some of my teachers are retired. Some are buried. The old movie house where I took my date has for sale on the marquee, long since outdated by the newer theaters that give you 16 choices. The only visitors to the drive-in theater are tumbleweeds and rodents. Memories of first dates and senior proms are weather-worn by the endless rain of years. High school sweethearts are divorced. A cheerleader died of an aneurysm. Our fastest halfback is buried only a few plots from my own father. I wish I could make it all new again. I wish I could... 
blow the dust off the streets. I wish I could walk through the familiar neighborhood and wave at the familiar faces and pet the familiar dogs and hit one more home run in the Little League Park. I wish I could walk down Main Street and call out the merchants that have retired and open the doors that have been boarded up. I wish I could make everything new, but I can't. My mother still lives in the same house. You couldn't pay her to move. The house that seemed so big when I was a boy now feels tiny. On the walls are pictures of mom in her youth, her autumn brown hair, her face irresistibly beautiful. I see her now, now still healthy, still vivacious, but with wrinkles, graying hair, a slower step. Would that I could wave the wand and make everything new again. Would that I could put her once again in the strong embrace of the high plains cowboy she loved and later buried. Would that I could stretch out the wrinkles and take off the bifocals and restore the spring to her step. Would that I could make everything new, but I can't. I can't, but God can. He restores my soul, wrote the shepherd. He doesn't reform, ultimately he restores. He doesn't camouflage the old, he restores the new. The master builder will pull out the original plan and he will restore it. He will restore the vigor, he will restore the energy, he will restore the hope, he will restore the soul. When you see how this world grows stooped and weary and then read of a home where everything is made new, tell me it doesn't make you want to go home. What would you give in exchange for a home like that? Would you really rather have a few possessions on earth than eternal possessions in heaven? Would you really choose a life of slavery to passion over a life of freedom? Would you honestly give up all your heavenly mansions for a second-rate sleazy motel on earth? Great, Jesus said, is your reward in heaven. He must have smiled when he said that line. His eyes must have danced and his hand must have pointed skyward. For he should know it was his idea and it was his home. Let's pray. Lord, awaken us. Awaken us from slumber as a church, as a people. To see the world. Let us not shrink back from the, the thoughts of despair and darkness in what seems at times to be such a lifeless universe where suffering seems to be so meaningless, where hope seems to be banished, and where Christians often throw out cliches one after the other, and that with every passing year it just grows more hollow. Lord, I'm grateful that we serve a Christ who is risen, who lived and taught as no other, and as we've seen these weeks, who gives us this really compelling sermon. And it's not about us critiquing it or evaluating it or asking, do we like it? It's us saying, have we listened? And does it evoke action? You give us this invitation to be poor in spirit, to be pure in heart, to be meek, to mourn, to be merciful, to hunger and thirst after righteousness to bring shalom peace to the world in which we live. And you close it out by saying that in such a different way that we can actually be blessed when we don't long for the approval of others and we live for your approval alone. That we won't be so easily swayed and that ultimately you will be our protector and our shield and our fortress and our rock You'll be the one that restores it all for you are that God. And it's funny to think that in the moment of the, of the message of the sermon that these disciples didn't really seem to get it.
But oh, how they did. Oh, how they did later when you ascended and your spirit came and they were, they were instructed and guided. And Lord, they got a, an uncanny boldness. They grew in their awareness. And Lord, I pray that we would. Lord, for suffering, affliction, persecution, for those who've been insulted, for those who feel alienated from a friend or family member because of their faith, because of the choices they're making. Lord, I, I would pray. I would pray for a sense, the Lord, that you're calling them to move closer to you. That you've given them a hall pass. You've given us freedom. You've given us a note of authority to live in this world. And you've created a home for us. For weary, weary travelers. Breathe that into us. In Jesus' name.